Welcome to Because You Need to Know. I am Edwin K. Morse, President and Founder of Pioneer Knowledge Services. This series is your digital resource of valuable conversations with nonprofit and knowledge management enthusiasts from across industries and from around the globe. Hello, I'm Nick Poole. I'm Chief Executive uh, SILIP, which is the UK's Library Association. Uh, so I live in London with a wife, two children, and a, a reasonably well-behaved dog. Uh, I guess we're in southwest London, so we're kind of near Runnymede, which was the site of the signing of the Magna Carta, Britain's original constitutional document. And just uh, in terms of who I am, I guess my parents, my mum was a school teacher and my dad was a journalist, so I was condemned to a life in knowledge and information from an early age. But really, my entire career to date has been, been focused around sharing knowledge. So I, I worked in museums. I was at the Natural History Museum here in London uh, for a while and have just recently finished a period as chair of Wikimedia UK, the, the Wikipedia chapter over here. My whole kind of thing is that knowledge wants to be open and that knowledge thrives when it's shared. Well, that sounds like a great way to help society. I think it is. I, I absolutely believe it. I, I think we're very unusual as a species, you know, that, that we can learn incrementally from the things that came before us, that the whole sum of human knowledge is right there encoded for us if we can just learn how to access it and share it. That's a pretty amazing thing. Well, I think the biggest stumbling block in that paradigm is having the motivation to learn. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you address that? Let's talk about that. Where do you get motivation to learn? So if you're around a bunch of library and information professionals, they already have a seeded, and I say seeded like you plant a seed, they have a seeded, I will say an internal motivation for what you just talked about as sharing knowledge, learning, continually improving. It, and it, it's really all about an inquiry wanting to know yeah. but how do you do that in an organization to plant that seed across an enterprise it's such a fantastic question funny enough it's it's one i've been working on a lot recently because we've been looking at some of the challenges with things like media literacy and people consuming and sharing disinformation and when you get right down to it you realize that actually people know that they're sharing disinformation and they're kind of okay with it that there is a a comfort with things that kind of affirm your biases and uh so what prompts people to, to want to know and to question? Back in, in my academic days, my, my research was around the sort of early days of artificial intelligence. And, and one of the things we used to posit there was that intelligence was always going to be artificial unless it had a need. You know, if it needed to be fed or cared for or, or loved or saved or protected or whatever, um, then you have a sense of self-actualization and a need to learn and communicate because you have something you need to make happen. And so I think that's the same here is, is understanding what our needs are and then how the ability to share knowledge, to socialize, to build connections with people fuels those needs. So that one of the things I always think about kind of KM when I first encountered it kind of like 15, 20 years ago is it was almost kind of abstracted away from the human need to communicate and empathize. And actually, it's, it's precisely that humanity that makes knowledge uh, shareable and, and meaningful and that, and that prompts people to ask each other questions. So let's talk about questioning. That ability to create actual um, contextually exposing questions, not superficial questions, but ones that are really critically thinking, how do you develop that skill? Uh, that's a great question. So I, I, one of my favorite quotes is from a, a colleague of mine who works in the tech sector over here who always says if a $20,000 app is the answer, then it needs to have been a really good question. <laughs> Actually, the ability to frame 
well-organized questions is, I think, a, a central skill, has been the central skill of librarianship. And interestingly, you know, I always hear this from librarians as well, that when somebody walks into the front desk and asks them a question, the real skill is finding out what they're really asking. You know, it's, it's never the actual question they come in with. It's about that reframing and interpretation. And that's one of the things that's fascinated me kind of evolving into the world of data is any data set, any kind of data architecture is really only as good as the questions that you can frame around it. But to me, that comes again from a, a kind of implicit understanding of the business need or the organizational need on the one side and then the capabilities of a body of information on on the other side and the magic for me of, of km is being able to marry those two things is say okay i really really understand what the organization needs to know and i also understand what the data is capable of telling us and I, I can bring those two things together well there's that symbiotic relationship as you say the need and the purpose i'm hearing need and purpose right for, there's a need and a purpose for whatever that data set is or the questioning line of questioning uh, and where is it going to go and i think that what you're talking about does there exist now with artificial intelligence and those twenty thousand dollar apps that are making huge evolutionary changes in not only how we work but the, the capacity to work is totally shifted does ai enable us or disable us in the long run, in that philosophical way of tying in ethical behavior, not that humans are 100% ethical, but can humans build an artificial intelligence that can be unbiased and ethical and all those things that we would really want from an oracle? Yeah, no, I, I honestly, I don't think they can. I mean, I, I think the only bit that AI can really do is the pattern matching bit. And there's so much more to cognition and consciousness than, than pattern matching. And so it's the framing, the contextualization, the connection, the inference, the great sort of creative leaps that connect one bit of knowledge with a, another. I was talking to a guy, uh, one of the local authorities, local government council over here, and he was looking at ways of reducing uh, domestic violence in, in their area. And he was looking across the data sets and, you know, they had data about health and reports in hospital and so on. But he found there was this data set that nobody would linked in before, which was a data set about their facilities team having to fix damage to flats, say where a door had been kicked or where a wall had been punched. And suddenly you bring that data in and you realize that you can actually predict where the risk is most likely to be. And it's that kind of creative leap of inference that I just think the AI was never built to create. You know, it, it, it wasn't its job. Well, that's the challenge, right? To be able to take those separate funnels or pieces of other collected data that logically when you think about it it's like well what's that got to do with anything but in your case example you're talking about violent behavior anger emotional outbursts emotional intelligence you know things that really are under the the hood or under the yeah. you know under the obvious right you know it's like yeah that's that's very cool so where do you see 20 years bringing us? Where do you see, I really want to tie this up in one little package. So if we could take it, the advances of artificial intelligence, virtual reality and augmented reality, and let's not forget the biotech world of embedded technology in the human framework, what's going to happen? <laughs> There's kind of a progression I always think is, 
really interesting where you, you've kind of seen over the, the many generations of technology, the abstraction of the interface from the data, right? So you separate out the two and, and in the old world, the information and the, the technology were implicitly linked. Now what we're seeing is data that's frictionless, you know, data that can flow between multiple systems. And then you can engineer interfaces to that data that perform multiple tasks. So I think on, on the one level, the future for me, 20 years is, is absolutely frictionless. It's about not creating data silos in one place or the other, but saying, let's move freely and, and lightly between all of these different information environments. The other thing, though, is, is there is a real progression, and it's a slightly scary one, I guess, but technology has gone from kind of um, fixed to a desktop to luggable to portable to wearable. Um, it's going to go to embedded, and eventually it's going to go to genetic. And, and what we're looking at is augmentation of people's ability to process data at scale. I think there's a really fascinating future where we as an interface to large bodies of information are going to become increasingly sophisticated. And then the data is going to be less situated in one context and more, more frictionless, more able to, to move. But to your previous question, I asked a colleague at Google about seven or eight years ago, you know, with all these amazing advances in search, are the questions getting more sophisticated? And his answer was no, they're getting much stupider. You know, that the, there is a laziness that sets in. The smarter you think the machine is as an interface, the dumber the question you're you're kind of putting into the system. Yeah, yeah. That's what really worries us, I think, on one level is there's a lot of kids growing up today who don't understand the mechanisms by which the knowledge is being pre-filtered and served up to them. And it's it's one thing to kind of understand how it works and be okay with it. The sort of unexamined data usage or, or information usage is is pretty scary because it leaves you open to abuse. I'm hearing what you're saying and, and as a user of libraries and understanding how libraries mechanically worked as a society builder to help share knowledge in through and out through the land. Local libraries were that mechanism to help bring knowledge to the locals. Now, you, just like in your example, so a kid that's searching for the best French fries doesn't really understand or probably want to understand that delivery method compared to a library system that was there to help society and usually funded by the government that it's in is now funded or financed by commercialism, just pure straight up commercialism slash capitalism as an engine for whatever the answer might be. And you're right. Kids don't really understand that if you go through three different search functions or three different search types, uh, Bing, Google, you know, Yahoo, whatever, whatever those things are as a source, you'll get three different sets of answers for the same question. And that's always a classic example of be careful where you get your data. So how do you fix that? Well, I'm always really interested in, you know, how every age thinks it's super sophisticated and then in 100 years now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, what? I still yeah. am. What are you yeah. talking about? But, yeah. uh, but, you know, in 100 years time, what will they look back on and think we were barbaric idiots for, for doing? And I've always thought one of them is, uh, you know, you guys just, we allowed people to go out with each other and get into relationships and then mess each other up and move on. Now, that, that's a weird <laughs> thing to do. The other one is you sent kids out into the battlefield in an information war and you didn't equip them with the wherewithal to look after themselves, you know. And so, yes. you know, it, it's 
capabilities of technology have vastly outstripped our understanding of the implications and in you know what they mean for society and we've yeah. got to do a better job of catch up we, we really do. well you bring up a hot topic for me and this is a button issue for me just your example of unleashing children into a world that there are no bumpers. There are no real protections. There are better now than there were 20 years ago. But that has always been a, a pain point for me because I think we did do that. I mean, it, there's no difference than giving a keys to the car to a 10-year-old and say, oh, go to the store for me. Or yeah. give them the keys to the internet. It's like, yeah, but the difference is the first example is an external, right? It's external to the house. Now you're you're giving keys to the kingdom and that's bringing them into your house on an internet yeah. basis. That's even more disarming that that yeah. is even a concept. So going back to the driving thing, why are we not having the same restrictions or at least in a safety and public health concept that we license people to get on the internet? There's no difference between the dangers of driving on a highway or being on the internet. Yeah. So why not train and have a get your license to be on the internet? Why is that not a thing? Yeah, it's fascinating this one. So um, there's a guy, Patrick Lamb, you'll, you'll know the, the knowledge management. And he was speaking at a, a conference of ours here in the UK. And his line always stuck with me that as knowledge professionals, we are aliens to the people we serve. That, you know, for the vast majority <laughs> of uh, vast majority of people walking down the street, they, they have no fully functional concept of, of the abstract. And the information is physical, it's real, it has as much... I remember talking to a, a colleague who worked in the security services over here, and he said the front line in, in the new generation of war is your kid's bedroom, um, and you don't even know it, right? You're not even aware. Wow, <laughs> that, that is a painful image. As soon as you said that, I was like, no kidding. And, and, the cyber, and probably the cyber threats, the cyber criminals that are out there know the biggest weakness. Absolutely, yeah, and... and uh, you know, it's really interesting, and I, I think almost unprecedented, although possibly, you know, you look at previous industrial revolutions, and you realize change has happened on a similar scale. But we stopped being a physical manufacturing-based economy nearly 100 years ago in the UK. So the point at which the value of information, intellectual assets crossed over with physical assets was about 80, 85 years ago. And so we are living in a world that's made of data, made of information, made of intangible assets, but we're bringing, you know, 18th and 19th century values to that. So copyright, for example, we're still treating intellectual property with a legal framework that was invented for, you know, the time when it was parchment and quill. It, it just, it makes no sense. And so th this whole game of catch up, you know, legally, socially, educationally, we just aren't there in terms of being able to manage this immense new capability that we've got as human beings. Safety and public health has got to come in. So this, is, this has got to be a government responsibility, is it not? Well, I, I think this is, we, we've got a very particular view on, on this one. I, I think of there, there's kind of three options, right? There's regulatory intervention, there's technical prevention, and there's education. And the problem with regulation is that it moves too fast, right? So the, the technology is, is I, anybody who watched Mark Zuckerberg in front of the Senate Select Committee will know that technology will run rings around the legislators. 
technical prevention is kind of leaving it to the custodians to be the custodians, you know, so that's not why. So the, the, the only option we think really works in the long run is education, is, is we've got to build it in right into our education system to equip kids with this. So how do we get there? Is this a country by country fight or can we have a unified front now that knowledge management has an ISO? Uh, as far as I can see, your organization, Silip, is one of the forefront organizations that's trying to bring a professional nature that's global and not specific to a university or to some contract company that does certifications. But you're really trying to build a model that sets a new stage and foundation for knowledge management to exist. That's the plan. It's beautifully expressed. Thank you for that. I mean, one of the things that really excites me about working with knowledge managers is their ability to go into any human situation and, and pull the right tool out of their armory. You know, they don't go in with a fixed model. They say, okay, you've got this problem and I, I understand the dynamics and this is a thing that might lever that problem and, and make it work. It's such a, a fundamental and human skill but it's so creative as a form of practice. And so I think the thing we realized really, really early on is you can't really standardize that. You can't say, here's a fixed box that that practice fits in. Right, right. What you can do is connect people, socialize knowledge, share experience, and then recognize the impact of the practice that they have. And that, that's what we're trying to do. And I think one of the reasons why we want to slightly formalize that is how on earth do you explain that to a finance director? You know, if, if you can see we've sold 30,000 units and they were all worth $100, you can kind of see the net value. Whereas if you say, well, I facilitated knowledge flow between this group of people you didn't know about, um, that's created a whole dynamic in the organization that you have no idea where the impact's going to come out. And so we're sort of steering clear of, of kind of quantifying impact. But what we think we can do is tell the story and evidence the impact and say, look, this is a a really creative practice. It's really fundamental to any innovative organization, any organization at any scale that aspires to create new things, has to draw those new ideas from multiple disciplines. And so here's a group of people that know what they're doing and that, that have experience in doing it. And it's been such a journey. It's, it's been completely amazing. But uh, it does make me realize that kind of every knowledge manager is a unicorn, right? I mean, everybody's completely different in their practice. But when you bring people together, there's this common understanding of, of the, the, the role and the nature of the work they do. How heavy of a lift is it for education to keep up? And I'm, I'm saying education in the formal sense of training and educating knowledge management professionals. There's a, sp a spattering of universities out there that either have a knowledge management master's and or PhD program out there. Is that still a need? So what you're just talking about, describing people uh, as unicorns, meaning that it's such a diverse pool of experiences that make knowledge management professionals. How do you quantify or build a curriculum that teaches that? And it's like, it's really an art form. It's really, uh, you can learn yeah. some foundational pieces, but unless you've got a general, and this is my bias, unless you've got a real generalist existence previous to entering knowledge management, you really have a hard time not getting into a funnel. As a generalist, you can lay on top and just kind yeah. of see the whole thing. The enterprise level ability to stay on top of all the little 
widgets and little parts and pieces that you can get tangled around. Where is education in this academically? Where do they fit? It's, it's really interesting to us. So my, my perspective, and this, this may be wrong, but I mean, my, my reading on this is that we're talking about a body of practice that's been through a kind of 30-year hype curve. And that in the early days, a lot of people went all in on um, sort of abstract theoretical instruction in KM practice. There was, you know, Model X by person Y and, and you know, they became an orthodoxy. And I think a lot of people oversold the proposition and it was presented as the new bit, next big thing. And then that turned out not to be true. And so where I think we are in that hype curve is on the gradual incremental mainstreaming of KM into, into real life. And it's not as exciting. There's not as much hype, but it does mean that we need to start with the kind of broad-based instruction. I completely agree. It's been really instructive watching some of the knowledge managers we work with at work because it is kind of wisdom and experience and empathy. And those things are really, really hard to teach in a classroom. You know, you can expose people to them. But it does worry me because I think from an instruction point of view, you can sort of create networks, socialize knowledge, get people supporting each other, and put people in positions where they're gaining that that relevant experience. I don't know right now that there are many kids going, Mom, Dad, I want to be a knowledge manager when I grow up. I just don't, I don't see that happening. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> that's, that's a great point. Yeah, right. And I, I'd love it too. I mean, that, that would be fantastic, but I just don't, I don't see it happening a lot. And, and it is pretty telling that, that a lot of the people we work with have really had to carve out not only their, their own job, but the very function of knowledge management within their organization. And usually each year, a kind of thing comes down from the C-suite saying, can you justify your existence again for another year, please, which gets really, really troubling. So where education comes in, I think, is that, you know, how can we expose people to knowledge and experience? How can we make insight and understanding into KM practice incremental? But how do we avoid constraining people into one body of practice? And say, okay, this is the box you're going to fit in. And I think, I mean, with the ISO, I think that's what a lot of people were concerned about is, look, you know, I'm a creative practitioner. I'm an artist, as you say, who, who are this group of people to say, this is KM canonically for me. But I think we've, we've got ways through that. I just, I almost feel, and that this I don't know if this is a legitimate assertion or, or not, but it kind of feels like we've got to keep the whole, whole show on the road for long enough for our organizations to mature to the point where they understand the value of what we're bringing. You've got to keep KM going um, until the point at which organizations turn around and say, well, ha hang on a minute, you know, this is actually our competitive edge. You know, the, the place we're going to get the next great innovation from is by sharing knowledge. The, the place where, well, I've seen it thriving in some places, but, you know, one of the most interesting is, is our security services over here, which are obviously knowledge and data and, and information intensive organizations. And their entire architecture, their, their modus operandi is about almost kind of serendipitous knowledge exchange. It's getting unusual people to meet each other and share information. And so they realize the true value of human connection and dialogue and, and that that's where the insight comes from. I just think you then go out into industry and, and you've got somebody tapping you on the shoulder and saying, how does this contribute to the bottom line? And you think, well, that's a tough question to answer. Right. If you really relate it to the knowledge economy, if we, if we think of that as an economic driver of an organization, and you're right, translating action and entrepreneurship and innovation and that soft skills exchange of just, hey, did you know this? How do you capture that to monetize it, or do we even have to? It's, 
it's going to be a mistake if we go down that road, I suspect. You know, if, if we try and create the quantity theory of knowledge management, then ultimately it creates a rod to beat us up with. And to be honest, that's not how value happens either. I mean, value happens from the things you don't expect and aren't planning and, you know, the, the kind of creative insights. You know, I, I think we can draw examples from places where it's worked and we can say, you know, this is the kind of advantage that say it's a, we, we work with some transport organizations over here, kind of big scale organizations. And you can say, well, look, the reason why they've been able to do this thing, they're better organizing their timetables or, you know, better meeting their, their users' needs is because they've been able to know what they know. You know, they've been able to tap into their collective corporate knowledge. I suppose the other place where we do see it really live is, is law, legal and, and professional services really are heavily front-end, sort of bleeding-edge, information, knowledge-based organisations. And so we've heard more from the legal profession about, well, we have competitive advantage because we can access our collective fund of knowledge better. Um, so, But I think if we put actually dollar value on this, then ultimately it will create you know more of a problem than it solves. You're looking at it in a financial setting that it doesn't really apply. You know, that's like saying, no. the example that's coming to me is like, going to an artist that creates sculpture and say, oh, wait, so if we figure out your time at so many pounds an hour and uh, the material cost of whatever the sculpture is, is that what you can sell it for? No, no, it's up to the user and perception of value that drives the price. So the perception yeah. of value, I think, is the slippery piece that a lot of knowledge management folks have a hard time getting around. How do you monetize a perception of value? I think you're right. I think if you went down and you we've seen it, right? The number of clicks on a site, the number, blah, 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 all these metrics that, what the hell does that mean? Does yeah. that mean anybody learned anything? No, it's just a traffic count. Okay, well, it's rudimentary at best, but what's the better scale? What's the better measurement? And so, yeah, we're, I don't know if we're gonna fix this today, but I didn't, how would you, how do you address that? Well, it, it, it touches on a, a favorite quote of mine, which is a, a compatriot of yours, Bobby Kennedy, was talking about um, GDP, gross national product, uh, I think, over there. And uh, there's a fantastic quote, which basically says that kind of measurement doesn't allow for any of the things that actually matter. You know, it doesn't allow for the health of kids or the quality of their education or the intelligence of our public debate. And I think we are ultimately fundamentally sort of reductive in terms of how we think about value and ultimately i mean human beings are learning organisms right i mean we we, we learn throughout life and then eventually the, the door closes and uh I, that whole thing that we are consistent continually in a process of learning discovery that all knowledge is open to challenge everything can be contested it's all you know an ongoing process and i think somehow we then compartmentalize organizations away from that and say okay we're in the business of products and services and actually the products and services are really only the most visible output of learning and knowledge and i think at some point in the distant future we will come to realize that what really matters is learning and inquiry rather than compartmentalizing and it's one of the reasons why i've, I've just firmly and totally believe in open knowledge and open education is because ultimately you know what is the quote a society grows great when old men plant trees whose shade they'll never sit in society in a digital age grows great when you unlock data rather than containing it so socrates was right yeah of course i mean it i mean it, <laughs> how, 
How how much have we forgotten that we already knew? I mean, if we and I, I had to look it up because I was like, I think I'm right. So the the Socratic method, which is all about inquiry, right? right? It's all about just not convincing people with data and not convincing people to change whatever their position is. It's just to keep asking questions till they start. Oh, wait a minute. That's faulty logic. Oh, maybe I'm not right. You know, it's like, you know, instead of beating somebody up with the right answer, you let them get there in a slow methodology that lets it sink into that their perception may be a little off. Yeah. I I remember um, Bill Gates talking at a a conference, I think in the Middle East, and uh, it was a particularly restricted society for women. He was asked how they could pump prime their tech sector. And he said, well, not subjugating 50% of your population would be a good place to start. <laughs> and uh, I kind of feel the same way that, that one of the things about opening up knowledge is, is who has the right to share knowledge has, has been quite a protected. So the difficulty with Socrates is it was all patricians and people with money. And I think there is an unprecedented opportunity to equalize who gets to share knowledge now, which when you think about what that could do for us in terms of unlocking talent, opening up capability, is just incredible. Yes. We're still slightly guilty of creating, you know, 19th century power structures in 21st century knowledge systems. But there is this massive opportunity to to make society more equal as a, a knowledge society. I love that. And that's going to tune us up to go to the famous question, what the heck is knowledge management? What the heck is knowledge management? That's an amazing question. I mean, I... I... <laughs> I've learned not to define it. Uh, I, I had a good friend who said, as soon as you start trying to define it, you're going to create a list and offend somebody. So I'm going to I'm going to dodge that question. But I think it is an approach, I guess. I can see it as a mindset, which is about, it, it's very human. It's about learning. It's exploratory. It's discursive. It fundamentally isn't something you can do on your own. You know, it's, it's about exchange and, and interaction and, and interfacing. And it's about that amazing ability. I think where the real skill is, is to say, okay, you're in this situation. I've seen a situation a bit like this. I have an idea about something that might unlock that situation. And that capability to select the right tool from your armory and apply it to a situation to unlock knowledge sharing. That to me, if if there is a definition of knowledge management, it's it's, it's understanding that technique. So it's like emotional intelligence. It's, it's, It's knowledge intelligence. Yeah. Right. There's a there's an ability to have an understanding and an awareness of yourself in relationship to knowledge or knowledge flow. Yeah, that that is as such an interesting point. I because that that's the bit that's often missing. I mean, I often think when you know society judges us from a hundred years time, one of the things they'll judge us for is that we just fail to understand the power of empathy. You know, the, the idea that you can put yourself inside the head of another person and situate yourself in their frame of reference. And I think, you know, 99% of the world's problems would be solvable or more easily solvable if you take a kind of rational choice perspective, you put yourself in the other person's head and say, okay, why are they making the decisions they are? Where are they coming from? What got them to that point? And so I think it's totally essential to have a sense of yourself and then the ability to empathize with another person that says, and and there is something about the the kind of abnegation of ego there that says, you know, I am not the most important agent in this. What what's really important is the transaction between the two of us, and my respect for your knowledge and your respect for mine, and and that exchange that happens. Because I think as soon as you bring ego into it, it becomes a, about control and power dynamic and and containing knowledge. So there's something there about 
Yeah, completely. Understanding who you are and your role in that exchange. So are you talking about uh, knowledge, awareness, or Buddhism? I'm confused. What? Well, you know, <laughs> they're not a million miles apart. Are no, I mean, so I, I part of my studies at university were in kind of classical literature and, and uh, in Greek and Roman and, and sort of up to the modern day. And there have been variations of this idea in most cultures that, you know, I, I remember uh, Goethe, German author, talking about something called the Erdgeist, the, the Earth Spirit, where... You know, there is knowledge and information in the world. We just need to learn how to tap into it. And I think what computers have done really, I mean, we obsess with the boxes and wires and the technology, but to me, they've unearthed a connectedness that, that really, you know, nothing is entirely separate from anything else. Like, I mean, half the conflicts that exist in the world exist because of arbitrarily drawn straight lines rather than following the kind of chaotic wavy lines of human experience. So I think Knowledge management has an awful lot to teach us about how to be more human in future and, and less in conflict with each other. Well, that is a fabulous way to wrap up this in-depth and interesting conversation, Mr. Nick Poole. Thank you very much for being here today. <laughs> oh, it's been a total pleasure. I knew I was really going to enjoy talking to you, and, and it's a great series of podcasts. I really appreciate what you're doing. Well, thank you for the endorsement. Anything that you can think of that you should have said? That I, I suppose the only bit I didn't actually say is that knowledge managers are very welcome to join our organization and, and involved <laughs> in what we're doing. So I should oh, the shameless you, plug. Yeah, go ahead. Plug. I should have said that. <laughs> <laughs> so what is SILUP? Yeah, so we are a professional community. Um, so we represent around 10,500 people working in knowledge, information, and libraries. Um, we're open to anybody anywhere in the world. So we've got knowledge managers from you know Middle East and Far East joining us. Uh, and anybody really who works in a knowledge or information-based role is is really welcome to join our community. And I have to say it's not super expensive. Thank you very much for the endorsement. I absolutely agree. Because You Need to Know is designed to bring people's experience and their knowledge forward to be shared. I'm Edwin K. Morris, and I thank you for joining in to listen to another conversation brought to you as a public service of Pioneer Knowledge Services, a nonprofit tax exempt organization with a charitable knowledge management purpose. Find us online at pioneer ks.org and add your voice to the conversation on Facebook.